Welcome to the Ideas in Action podcast, brought to you by One World, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Chris Jackson, Editor-in-Chief at One World, where our mission is to publish voices and stories that give us new language to rethink the past, understand the present, and imagine new futures. From Ibram Kendi to Carla Cornejo Villavincencio, Tanahasi Coates to Alicia Garza, Kathy Park Hong to Brian Stevenson, and Kali Fajardo Anstein, our authors' work and their lives are dedicated to telling stories and exploring ideas that help us reframe our understanding of the most critical issues in our world and in ourselves. Join me and the One World team each week as we explore the challenges facing our society and share ideas and perspectives from our authors to help us truly see the world we're in and imagine the one to come. Hi, I'm Nicole Counts, Senior Editor at One World, and I'm here with my colleague Mika Kasuka, Senior Publishing Manager at One World. Hey Mika. Hi Nicole, it's good to be here. Excited to have you here. Today's episode wraps up season one of the Ideas in Action podcast. If you've been listening along, you'll know we've tackled a lot of tough issues facing our society. We've also found many signs of hope for a brighter world ahead. So for the final episode of our first season, it seems only fitting to look to what the future may hold, which by the way, could include another season of Ideas in Action. So stay tuned for that. To help us understand where we're at and where we can go from here, to begin to heal our communities and ourselves, we spoke with One World author, Valerie Kaur. Valerie is a civil rights activist, lawyer, founder of the Revolutionary Love Project, and author of See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love. To kick things off, let's hear Valerie's perspective on what we can learn from our ancestors about how they faced down adversity to fight for a freer America, and how we can summon the courage to continue that mission today. Here's what she had to say to us about that. We know that so many of our ancestors, especially Black, Indigenous ancestors, people of color who have come before us, they know. They know what it's like to see the things that you hold most dear assaulted. So many of them found a way to process the emotions, the powerful emotions in their bodies enough so that they weren't exploding, they weren't becoming what they were fighting against, that they were harnessing that energy for survival for flourishing, the audacity to keep singing and dancing with your children, the audacity to keep laboring for an America that they did not live to see. And when I think about them and how they survived and their resilience and how so many of them chose to still show up in their life with love, I think about how that now is our task. We're on the precipice. Is this the darkness of the tomb <laughs> or the darkness of the womb? Is our nation dead or is our nation still waiting to be born? And the courage to see the darkness of the womb, the courage to hold fast to a vision of an America where we are all safe, your children and mine, that, that is the vision that is all up to all of us to start to touch and not just touch, start to feel in our bodies. And we cannot feel it. We cannot hold it up unless we are breathing together and unless we are summoning the bravery to keep showing up together and to do our part together. I remember that day so clearly, and I just, I love the amount of emotion that Valerie carries in her voice because I think it, it allows you to feel that emotion and the specter of watching people storm, you know, Valerie calls it 
in this conversation, she calls it a temple of democracy. The United States of America, our history has been this struggle between this idea, this, this sort of notion of like, we all have rights being the dream and then the reality of a caste system and it's slavery, chattel slavery, and that being also the sort of other foundation and how we're constantly battling between like the best and the worst versions of ourselves. As much as I have the sort of the shame of that sort of slavery and discrimination and all of that sort of like in my sense of history, I also have the pride of all of the people who throughout history have like fought against that. Yeah, I feel all of that. I think that Valerie is someone who leads her life and her work with her full self. She shows up with her whole body and spirit. And yeah, when I was listening to her talk, I I, I almost think in terms of my body. You know, I, I think how, when I'm wondering how I'm feeling or how I'm reacting to something, I first think about where I'm tense in my body. I think about where I'm able to release. I think about the spark of pain in my ankle when I'm walking or, you know, when your back kind of palpitates for you and, and just what that means. And someone told me a while ago that, you know, generational trauma is, of course, um, embedded into our bodies, but so is generational love and generational glory um, and joy. And even to have the ability to see in America that is safe for us all, you, you also have to have, you know, some sort of hope that this love and glory that, that has brought us here will also lead us to, you know, a more safe future. I'm always very moved by Valerie whenever I hear her talk or, you know, I actually remember the first time she came into the office when we were thinking about acquiring her book. So, you know, this is before anything was even written. And at the time it was me and her editor, Chris Jackson, and a former editor of ours, Victory Matsui, was also there. And we just sat, the four of us, in an office for, you know, what it felt like hours talking about what it would mean for us all to birth a new country, what it means to feel the kind of the darkness and the, the scariness of the wound. And I had never felt so buoyed, I think, by an author before. And when Valerie left that day, the three of us editors sat in that office for, you know, probably a half hour longer, just in awe of everything <laughs> Valerie had shared with us. And in her vision, you know, of the world, which is to love ourselves, love our opponents, and love our family and friends. And, you know, I think about that trifecta a lot. When I'm editing, I think about it in the work that I do as an activist or, or a global citizen, or even in the work I do as a as a friend or a sister or a partner. I feel like there's so many different things I have. Like I have responses to like each of the different sections of brilliance of what you just said. But I think the first one was like this notion of like feeling things physically. I feel like so much of the time when we talk about ideas and activism, we, we sort of locate it entirely sort of in our brains. It it's an intellectual endeavor. And I think what Valerie does is she sort of like brings it through your entire body so that, you know, bravery is a feeling, generational glory is a feeling. You know, we're not gonna grow, nor are we gonna feel 
the deepest kind of freedoms if if we don't engage with our bodies and if we don't listen to our bodies. I think they hold all of our histories, all of our futures, you know, I think they hold all the secrets. And it's interesting because it's right there. We we wake up to it, we we take advantage of it as we're walking throughout the day, as we're eating. I think it's always speaking to us. Valerie's whole idea about being in the darkness is not just, you know, that you're in some sort of doom and gloom, you're actually in the womb. You know, you're back in this safe part of a body. I think that that uh, metaphor in general speaks a lot to the fear we have of sitting still and the fear we have of understanding what's going on within our own selves, you know, and, and what it's saying to us. And I think Valerie helps us feel a little less fear. That's just the perfect segue into this next clip. I think about how this era that we're in is an era of transition, a much larger era of transition that in birthing labor, transition is considered the final stage in birthing labor. It is the most painful and most dangerous. It's breathless. It feels like dying. Isn't that how it's felt? And yet it is precisely the stage that precedes the birth of new life. And when I think about our nation in transition right now, I think about the fact that within 25 years, the number of people of color will exceed the number of white people for the first time since colonization. And the forces of white supremacy and tyranny and cruelty that we have saw the last few years, those aren't going away. You know, will, will we continue to teeter on the brink of civil war or will we finally begin to birth a multiracial democracy, a nation where all of us are safe and free? And that question, will we transition this country? That's the work of our lifetime. And some of us may not live to see the fruits of our labor. So how do we stay in the labor? How do we find longevity in the labor? How do we labor? How do we breathe? How do we push? And my books, you know, Stranger, writing this book was in a way, it was, it was, it was an act of survival for myself. Like I needed to find longevity. <laughs> I, you know, I could barely last for the last 20 years. How am I going to, how am I going to stay in the labor for the next 25 years? And I was able to identify these practices going back to our ancestors. How did they breathe? How did they push? How did they grieve? How did they rage? How did they fight? How did they reimagine? How did they let joy in despite everything? And those are the practices that form the chapters of the book and this framework for revolutionary love, which has now become my compass. So now that I have this compass in my hands, it's like, okay, now I know what my role is (laughs) to inspire, equip, and help other people stay in that long labor too. Let's just take a pause there before we hear more from Valerie. I would love to hear, Mika, in your opinion, what, you know, what's the definition of revolutionary love for, you know, our listeners? Oh, I love, I love this. So revolutionary love, it's a way to process, to identify, process, and then sort of enact change and a a reframing of the way you see your world. So it begins with recognizing this anger that you feel about the way the world is and how unfair and unjust it can be. And then it becomes the space where you step away and you listen and you allow yourself to sort of process what you're feeling. And then you step in and you begin to reimagine and change the world by doing so. Yeah, I I think that's beautiful. And I'll just say, you know, I think that what Valerie's book does is it either reaffirms, 
you know, your own compass or it helps you figure out exactly what your compass is and whether that's, you know, just adopting Valerie's um, work or it's building on that. Valerie said something along the lines of, you know, the work to change the world is to stay in the work. And to me, that means stay in the moment to to witness, to rebel, to care. And And a lot of that work, the ability to do that means, you know, there's some sort of clarity or clear pathways within you, you know, that that the work can really flow from and that it's not getting caught up. So, I, you know, I think something that we see in her memoir and in my opinion, we see in, in some of the best and most influential spiritual and, and justice leaders is we see them doing the work on themselves in order mm-hmm. to do the work that betters the world. And I think, you know, that's a huge, it's a huge thing. I'm, I'm curious, Mika, if, if you want to share, um, I'm curious, do you feel like you have your own personal compass? Ooh, <laughs> Ooh <laughs> you just went there. <laughs> I think my personal compass and and part of the reason why I love literature I think so much or narrative in general um and it's actually part of Valerie's um overarching sort of theory so it it I I grabbed a facet of it and she had like the whole thing because she's brilliant but I think mine has always been retaining this sense of empathy and wonder about somebody else it's easiest when it's somebody that you love and you care about it's easy to feel for the people who are close to you, it's so much more difficult to extend that same wonder and kindness to someone who whose views of humanity and justice and how the world should work are directly in opposition to you. But that's something that books can do, right? They, they take you into someone else's um, soul. And... I think activism is is the work to sort of stretch that into like a socio-political reality. And Valerie talks about that as well. She had some someone very close to her was one of the first people to be murdered in a hate crime after 9-11. And she extended that courtesy of wonder and a willingness to listen to the man who killed him. And I am not there yet. I think emotionally I'm not that sort of awakened, but yeah empathy and wonder are my compasses. What are yours? I think mine are similar. And I would say it's also probably similar to the great Mary Oliver's kind of directions for living, which is to witness and then to share what you've witnessed. And I think about that a lot in my life, these two things, um, my job as a citizen, and I think my responsibility as a being on this planet is to care for every other being and I think I care by witnessing by listening by wondering and then I think that second part is the action you know what do I do once I've heard these stories how do I share these stories how am I living each and every day being aware of of my community and every other community but I think what what you said is so powerful and I think speaks so much to to Valerie's core which is is love and you know, she says a lot that when she was, you know, she started as a lawyer, she went to law school, and when she was, when she would say the word love in a lot of these circles, you know, she would get like scoffed at and, and people wouldn't take her as seriously. And I think it's that people are afraid of what loving this world and, and loving the beings in this world 
you know, how magical and, and wondrous I can be and also how painful and, and hard that can also be. But I think it is our, our deepest responsibility, you know, is to care for one another. Yeah, and I, I feel like, you know, the way you were just talking about how you bring that to every aspect of your life, I, I think it goes back to what we are trying trying to do at One World, right? We're, we're trying to witness and listen and I mean, I, I don't see us publishing any books by a white supremacist, but we are publishing books about white supremacy and, and seeking to demystify it, right? Like it's not a bogeyman. It's tied to very, you know, specific political and economic forces and dissect it, right? So that we can dismantle it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think on that note, let's hear Valerie talk about letting go of the word activism, which is one of my favorite clips of hers. I'm going to actually just let go of the word activism and invite us instead into a way of being. You know, I go back to the founder of the Sikh faith, Guru Nanak. You know, his, his origin story is that he emerged from the river after disappearing for days in deep contemplation, so distraught by the violence and the strife around him. And his words, his vision that he emerged with was Ik Om God, this idea of oneness, that we belong to each other. I see no stranger, I see no enemy. He taught us that we could look upon the face of anyone and say, you are a part of me, I do not yet know. That, that way of being, that insistence on love, that, that, that idea of loving without limit, it's so ancient. I mean, it's on the lips of, of spiritual teachers throughout millennia, and yet we have built institutions of power that cling to hierarchies of human value. <laughs> And so those of us who take this call to love without limit into our heart, it's, it's our time now to step into the center, to step into positions of power, to remake institutions from where we are. Because if I see you as a part of me as I, that I do not yet know, that I must be brave enough to let your grief into my heart and to fight for you when you are in harm's way. I must be brave enough to let you into my circle of care. So what might it mean for us to start to seed um, communities that are beloved communities where we are. And that requires what we think of as activism, <laughs> but it's also, you know, it's, 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 it's showing up at the, the school board meetings and bringing your, your friends together around reckoning with white privilege and sitting with your children and talking about what it means to be anti-racist. It's, it's a way of, of, of showing up for yourself and valuing your own body, especially if you are a person of color. It's, it's a way of being, it's an, a way, an orientation to life that is both political and personal and animated by love. And when we do that, then the activism flows from that. If it's coming from this place where you're summoning your courage and your wisdom and your commitment to show up, then you, won't, you can't help but be able to start to change and seed change in the world around you. I love this clip from Valerie. I'm kind of wondering, Nicole, since, since you said this was your favorite, you know, what, what do you think is important about changing from a stance of activism to a stance of being from which our activism flows? Yeah, I love this, this clip so much because I love the word commitment that she uses. And I think that what I hear from what Valerie is saying is that it's less about these titles of feminist or activists or civil rights leader, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, and it's really actually more about fully committing to the work, you know, fully committing to living a life that is 
is not just for yourself. And to me, what I hear is um, letting go of some of some of the ego, you know, and some of mm-hmm. the privileged fear that if you give up any ounce of your power, you know, somehow you'll you'll be less off. But in in reality, we, we all benefit, you know, we all actually end up gaining a lot more. And in the age that we're in and, you know, with social media and with trends, et cetera, et cetera, I, I think there isn't actually a lot of commitment to understanding the depth of radical thought or of what activism has been, what social movements have been, how they originated. It's actually become more, much more about serving your own ego or protecting maybe some of the uncomfortable feelings that come up. But I think going away from that word and moving into the work of, of really interrogating yourself, interrogating your role in, in this world and accepting that, you know, we're all ignorant. We all have biases. Mm-hmm. That's not, it's not, those aren't evil words. I think admitting that just means that you're, you're comfortable doing lifelong work. My mother's favorite thing to say about our, our family is that we love hard and that's mm-hmm. how she wanted us to live our lives. Um, and, and the way she wanted us to interact with the earth and with, with people and, and with animals is we love first and, and we do that hard. First of all, that idea of loving hard, I, I love it. And I think part of the thing I love about it is that the hardness of it, right? So that, that recognizing that love is not this soft, ooey-gooey, sort of hallmark pink force. It's, it's profound. It's fierce. It's very scary. So that's the one thing I wanted to say. And then the other thing I wanted to say was relating to your what you said about the commitment to constant re-education. And I just, I think that's so true, right? Like this idea that change ends, that our ability to improve ends is, is so sad. It just, it really reminds me of the, um, of what Ibram Kendi says and how to be an anti-racist. Like when he talks about his own journey from being racist to being anti-racist and recognizing that it's not about this sudden moment when like a bulb goes off or you suddenly earn your sort of like Girl Scout badge of like, I am officially anti-racist. It's something that you wake up every day and choose to do. You choose to interrogate your behavior and be attuned to how other people are in the world with you. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's interesting thinking about, you know, when you're witnessing someone come into their consciousness, Mm -hmm. when you first kind of witness someone first read the autobiography of Malcolm X or Women Who Run With Wolves, and just these eye-opening experiences of class issues and racist issues and political differences and social movements, et cetera, et cetera. And that awakening, I think, is so painful. I feel, you know, I remember my own early stages of coming into my consciousness. Obviously, it's, it's, it's all a journey. And feeling deeply depressed because mm-hmm. you start to realize what your position is in this world, how other people see you, the work that needs to be done. And it, it feels like a mountain that, that there's just no way you can ever summit. And, you know, I think I've said this even before in, in this podcast, but ta Coates and Nicole Hannah-Jones, in a conversation they had, they were talking about how once you accept that, that our work is only to move this forward an inch, Mm-hmm. It's so freeing because, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's not our job to, to fix everything. And for me, I would also say another layer of that is the antidote to the depression, as corny as it sounds, 
was was my mom's reminder to love hard because as you're saying that loving hard is not you know the simple um frilly thing it's it's a deep commitment and i think in a lot of ways that's what she was teaching me when she would say that mantra was was to be committed to your community to yourself to your family and to the world that kind of returns to what valerie says right if you think about that sort of adage as you know depression is anger turned inwards and so there's this awareness there's this awareness that there is so much work to do and and that anger moving inwards because it's almost like oh god i'm so i'm so tired but if it's just an inch like i you can do you can do an inch i can do an inch right right yeah i think um this next clip by valerie it's interesting because it talks about our all of our different roles, you know, mm-hmm. and and maybe for me it it opens up the question, what is my role, and what is the one special thing I can add to this to this movement? So let's hear from Valerie. This is what I really want to say. Everyone has a different role in the labor and revolutionary love loving opponents, loving others, opponents, ourselves, that, that, that work is done in community. So, so much of the task is asking ourselves, like, what is the labor I'm ready for? What is the particular role that I am ready to play? If you are someone in this country who has a knee on your neck, it is not necessarily your role to look up at your opponent and try to wonder about them or listen to them or love them. No, your job is to stay alive. Your job is to take the next breath. But if you are someone who by virtue of your privilege is safe enough and brave enough to wonder about those kinds of opponents, then we need you now. (laughs) We need you now. That man who took the Confederate flag into the Capitol and waved it, he's probably not going to sit down with someone like me. But he might have a neighbor in his life or a friend or a niece who is willing to see him as a human being, a complex human being, a wounded human being, and listen to him and tend to his wounds. Because what I have discovered, and you saw this over and over again in See No Stranger, every time I sat down with people I wanted to hate, white supremacists, prison guards, at Guantanamo soldiers, my own former abusers, the murderer of Bilbir Singh Sodi, every time I sat down with them and I listened to them, wondered about them. You are part of me. I do not yet know. You have a story that I need to hear. Let them into my circle of care. It was hard work. It was so difficult. Everything in me wanted to leave. And yet the insistence, you know, loving one another person doesn't begin in empathy or compassion that comes later. It's just the act of wonder. Who are you? What is your story? And every time beneath the slogans and the sound bites, when I hear their story, I see their wound. And I can feel a little bit of their pain. And I've, I've come to understand that there are no such thing as monsters in this world. There are only human beings who are wounded, who do what they do out of their own sense of insecurity or greed or suffering. And that doesn't make them any less dangerous. <laughs> but seeing their humanity actually makes me a smarter advocate. It gives me information for how to hold up a vision of a world that includes even them, because all these white nationalists who storm the Capitol, their aggression comes from deep, unresolved grief. They're grieving the notion that this country ever belonged just to them in the first place. 
imagining, imagining a critical mass of people who are willing to tend to that grief. And so that in 25 years, we have led enough of us across the threshold so that we can learn how to be in right relationship with each other. So what is your role? Like, are you so breathless that you need to be loving on yourself and on your people? Are you in a position to, to link arms with those of us who are in harm's way and love others in solidarity? Or are you and or are you in a position to reach out to some of those opponents and do the work of sitting with their humanity and being in relationship with them? And I know this. <laughs> I know that this takes time. You know, it took me 15 years to reach out to Bobir Uncle's murderer and now 20 years this fall. And it took me all of that time to process my own grief and rage for people to love me well enough. And people in the prison had to love him well enough to be able to apologize. People in my life had to love me well enough for me to be able to reach out to him. And it's only in that moment where that previously unimaginable moment of reconciliation happened. So imagine if that white man waving that Confederate flag, what might happen in 25 years? Might, might redemption be possible? Might transformation take place? And just the, the audacity to ask that question and hold up that vision, that alone is revolutionary. It expands our imagination and invites us into a way of being. I want to start with the last thing that Valerie said, which expanding our imagination and inviting us into a way of being, a new way of being. That's what all of our books and mm -hmm. authors do. And I, and I think in general, I'll say that's what books and art do. I find myself just thinking and reflecting on, you know, what she's saying about like taking an inventory on yourself. Are you just today, not thinking of this week, but in this moment, do I need to take care of myself and recharge in order to do the work? Do I need to reach out to my family and friends and community and sit with them? Or, or, or today, can I, can I think in an even more larger scale way? And when I am the most exhausted, I often feel then the most depressed, you know, and unable to to bring myself into my work. And as you know, Mika, our work is, is in a really, it's, mm -hmm. it's really emotional work, you know, working directly with authors and with their um, mm -hmm. babies, mm -hmm. AKA mm -hmm. books. <laughs> um, you feel guilty if you can't show up in with your full self. You know, if I'm at all exhausted, I feel like, well, how can I, you know, I, I have to recharge because mm -hmm. they deserve all of me and it's interesting because that's always when I'm when I push away books in general that's always when I'm like I don't want to start a new book subconsciously I'm thinking I don't want to feel mm. inspired you know like you feel so low that opening up your imagination feels like too much work and then you know you do this magical thing where you sit down you force yourself to open up a new book to watch a new movie to call a friend, to research uh, new art, and it just happens. You know, you get so sucked in. I mean, when it's when it's great, when it's great art, you get so sucked in, and your mind is allowed to imagine again. And it's just something I've really reflected on in this pandemic. I have felt more exhausted, more unable to take care of myself than than ever before, and I. I think I have had a newfound appreciation or I have remembered the power of great, great storytelling, how it completely opens me up and allows me to imagine, which 
yeah, I, I just, I think that's actually a lot harder said than done. I know, I know exactly what you mean. I think when you are exhausted and tapped out, at, at least for me, I have this feeling that I have to, I have to retreat in order to surge forward and present myself at, at my fullest self. And I think you can kind of get trapped in the eye of it all, you know, especially in a pandemic, right? When you can't interact as much with your surroundings and the people around you. And that's why reaching out into to the other, you know, reaching for art, reaching for a book, any book, it, it almost doesn't matter, right? As long as it pushes you outside of yourself. And then you kind of come back into yourself and you're like, oh, I, I, I am somehow restored, right? And that's why reading is so good for you. <laughs> but it's, it's hard too, because I think as well, it, when you are engaged in work like activism or engaged in the work that we do, you know, the, the importance of it makes you want to sort of really push yourself because it's in service of such, of such like worthy, noble, whatever you want to call it causes. And it's, it becomes, it becomes even harder, but I feel like it, that sort of reminds me of that Audrey Lord quote, which is, you know, self-care is a, is a political act, right? Because you have to, you have to do that. And self-care can be reading. Self-preservation is. That's what it is. It's not self-care. I think it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that self-preservation, I mean, I think if, if there was ever a year that has shown us that that has to be the the first thing we do, you know, it's this, it's this last year. I think something that might be hard to, to sit with or, or think through is, you know, sitting with our opponents, mm -hmm. you know, um, giving, giving space to, as she mentioned, the the person who murdered her uncle. What do you think of that? And, and, you know, how realistic do you think that is for? I mean, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge ask and, and it can feel, I think, really unfair and unwieldy to, to ask someone to, to look at their oppressor and, and say, you know, I feel empathy for the wounds that have brought you to this place where you are now denying me my full humanity, right? That's like something that's a real, mental hurdle. But I think what I find really moving about Valerie is that she phrases it as, you know, it's not about giving them something. It's about giving yourself a chance to live and breathe and grow in this world without, without the burden of hate and, and fear. And I think that is a very powerful way to sort of adjust that because when it when you don't want to give that gift to someone else you can reframe it as you know like you were saying like self-preservation for yourself totally i mean i think there's been a lot of mentions of the the capital riots and i i saw on black twitter and black instagram you know a lot of reactions of just complete mm -hmm. exhaustion you know there's so much there's so much we have to forgive there's so much we have to um, look away from to wake up every day and and go about our our lives. You know, there's so much work in in just getting out of bed. I think what Valerie is saying, and I think why her book is so important, is it it is giving us a blueprint of why and how we can let go of some of the anger that's festering in us 
if only mm. so that we survive and then we can take care of our own communities. That's actually, I think, the perfect lead-in to this next and final clip. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Nicole. I feel so healed for the rest of my day. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And yes, let's end with Valerie telling us to start where we begin. You have to start with your people. You know, you don't you don't go to battle alone. You don't give birth alone. You need to start with your people. I, I call it um, seeding pockets of revolutionary love. You know, can you bring enough people into your life who share this ethic, this way of being, who want to help you live into it, into your life and act from there? So our home has become a pocket of revolutionary love. There are schools who are approaching us asking, how can we become pockets of revolutionary love? Imagine if we can start seeding enough pockets of revolutionary love across the country. And those are the pockets. Those are the, the groups that then provide the support for those who want to reach out and do the bridging and expand and expand and go on. You know, I've been reading all this incredible data around social change since I published the book. I was like, okay, how do we actualize this? And um, there's this data on when 3.5% of a population engages in a nonviolent action, it creates change throughout an entire society. That's, That's 11 million people in the United States. And I feel like I have my marching orders. (laughs) If we can mobilize, catalyze, inspire, equip 11 million people in this country to start practicing revolutionary love where they are, to do the hard and necessary work of being in just community with one another, starting now over the next 25 years, might that be the critical mass that gets us across the threshold? Thank you for listening to the Ideas in Action podcast by One World. For more information on the authors and books discussed in this episode, please follow at One World Books on Instagram or visit OneWorldLit.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your listening platform of choice. This podcast has been produced by Pat Stengo and Stephanie Bowen and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I'm Chris Jackson, and until next time, this is Ideas in Action.